Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, Helen Thompson and I are going to try and make sense of what's been going on in British politics after another extraordinary year and at the beginning of another tumultuous week. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading review of culture and ideas. And the LRB is returning to first principles with their latest exclusive offer for Talking Politics listeners. Get 12 issues of the magazine for just £12 and they'll also send you one of their surprisingly famous tote bags, acclaimed by the likes of New York Magazine and Vice. Just use the URL mylrb.co.uk slash talkingbag. That's mylrb.co.uk slash talking bag. Helen and I recorded this conversation on Monday morning, conscious that a week is a long time in politics and the week before Christmas might still have some surprises in store. So we will be coming back to pick up on any loose ends in the new year. But for now, this is our reflection on 2021. On the basic politics of COVID, I feel like the Tories, or Johnson maybe in particular, still has a real advantage, and Labour have a real advantage too on very different fronts. So I could be completely wrong about this, but my feeling that the advantage that Johnson has and the last 18 months have sort of been in line with this. People are often baffled by the way in which he seems to be able to get the benefit of the doubt in public opinion, given Britain's relatively poor performance on all sorts of metrics, including the most basic metric of deaths, but also the relative slowness with which his government has tended to react to the advice from the scientists, from his medical advisors. But that he's still basically in tune with public opinion in the sense that he doesn't resist I mean, he certainly doesn't reject the scientific advice. And in a sense, he doesn't resist it to the point of pushing back hard against it. But he is reluctant. He's as a reluctant follower of advice, which means he sometimes is too slow, but he's slow partly because he believes there are all sorts of trade-offs. And though opinion surveys, when people are asked, are you willing to back another lockdown, more restrictions, people tend to say yes. There's also a lot of anecdotal and I think focus group evidence that people think that Johnson is doing his best. And part of what that means is that he does this reluctantly. So reluctant lockdown seems to me to be closer to public opinion than the Labour position, which is not reluctant enough in the sense that Keir Starmer generally seems to want to go hard and early because there's a lot of evidence that that's the most effective thing. But that's slightly out with most people's instincts on this. So when even recently people in by-elections, certainly the by-election that the Tories won, the recent one, say on the doorstep, this is anecdotal, that they still think that Johnson is doing his best on COVID. I kind of feel that's what that means. And it's still possible that that will win out for him through Christmas and beyond. It's possible. But that the massive disadvantage he has and the big advantage Labour has is that the parliamentary party is united behind the Labour position. There's almost no dissent, it seems, on COVID. Whereas clearly now the Parliamentary Conservative Party is split down the middle on this. So Johnson's kind of reluctant following of the advice is not acceptable to, looks like, up to 100 and maybe more Conservative MPs. And a split party probably in the end is a more dangerous position to be in than to be in tune with public opinion. 
What do you think? Yeah, <laughs> I, lar- yeah, I largely instinct. agree with that. I think that it's been pretty clear throughout that the clear majority opinion in Britain has been in favour of, of the lockdowns as they have been and doesn't want to take any significant risks around the health service and that that's the bottom line. Although that there is a clearly a you know a sizable minority um, opinion that, that has wanted to this is slightly crude but privilege the economy over protecting the NHS from collapse, the clear majority has been saying that the biggest risk is to the health service and therefore that must be prioritised. I think though that at the same time, even as you say, in that clear majority group, there's a, a part of opinion that's probably quite close in some sense, perhaps to median, doesn't want to be gung-ho about the lockdown and they don't want to hear people being very gung-ho about the lockdown as if they are having rules put upon them or the, the people who are making the rules are enjoying putting new rules upon us. And I think you're right that that Johnson has been able to ride that because nobody is going to take him as somebody who's gung-ho about locking us all up. You know, He is fairly obviously in, in these respects um, fairly liberal by instinct and I wouldn't say he's completely been dragged kicking and screaming into this but he, he's shown his reluctance. And given the fact that there clearly are trade-offs, having a politician who shows some sense that there is a significant downside, that a significant cost to the approach has been taken is, is no bad thing. Now, you might say in terms of then the Conservative Parliamentary Party itself, I think things have become obviously extremely difficult for him. And it, I think it's quite striking that the rebellion over the, the last set of rules uh, you know, over 100 MPs came from right across the party. It's not simply the people who've been unhappy about lo- the, the lockdowns from the start. This is where I think, though, it gets it's a, gets a little bit difficult to disentangle between what is actually a, a significant shift in COVID attitudes within the Parliamentary Conservative Party from what is a, a significant shift in attitudes towards Johnson's leadership within the Conservative Party. Because here then the question becomes, well, is it actually the, these new COVID restrictions that actually, you know, in the big scheme of things, weren't that dramatic at all? Or is it a proxy for the discontent with Johnson about any number of issues? So we've got another piece of evidence now, which is both the fact of David Frost's resignation, the timing of it. We're meant to believe that it was agreed he would delay it. And then for whatever reason, he didn't delay it till the new year. And then his resignation letter, you can't read too much into these things, but it was an interesting letter. So why might someone like him, he's not an MP, he's unelected, but he's very close to Johnson and the Johnson project, whatever that is, why might someone like him have had enough? And there seems to me like broadly three possible reasons, one of which is the one we'll come on to, which is that people are starting to lose faith in Johnson's ability just to manage the scandal and the air of scandal around Johnson's administration and He's not going to put that in his resignation letter that you know he lost faith in him because of this photo or that video. But the other two things are trying to make a connection between the hopes that Frost put in Brexit for a particular kind of Brexit, a entrepreneurial, low tax, small state, light regulation Britain, and what he sees as excessive COVID restrictions and regulations. And, and the implication is that his disappointment with the direction of travel of the Johnson administration is that somehow these two things have got yoked together, or rather his disappointments have got yoked together. He's not getting the Brexit he wanted. He thinks that Britain is moving towards a more European style of state, too much tax, too much big state action, and that this is also somehow being manifested in Johnson's 
willingness to backtrack on saying no more lockdowns and get drawn in by his scientific advisors into more big state action on COVID. And just in the background is a clear implication that he thinks Johnson has sort of allowed himself to be dragged in the same direction on both of these issues. But what I'm really struck by is that Again, this is not a sort of united front against Johnson. So there are quite a few prominent people who would be close to David Frost on Brexit questions, who are nonetheless not at all with him on the idea that COVID restrictions and lockdowns uh, have gone too far. So there was a withering, and I thought, in its way, devastating critique by Dominic Lawson, a prominent Brexiteer uh, in the Sunday Times this weekend, laying into that branch of the parliamentary conservative party who have voted against the latest round of covid restrictions their sort of scientific illiteracy essentially their stupidity on this so it's not like that there is a, a front against johnson where people are saying covid is symptomatic of also the brexit that we may have lost i mean i don't know how big the the david frost constituency is there it's one of the reasons maybe that johnson will survive i can't see a coming together of those two criticisms against him yet at least there's a great deal of of tangle for anybody sort of trying to run as frost appears to have done the the covid questions and the brexit questions and the um zero 2050 questions into the same sort of critique and in one sense which I think is what the implication of of what you've just said in a way doing so paradoxically strengthens Johnson's position as as standing on some ground where actually judgment is made about different issues and seeing them pragmatically rather than trying to push everything through an ideological lens which is the impression that Frost ends up giving and I think this comes back to a bigger a picture for the, the Conservative Party, which is, is in lots of ways, there are plenty of people within the Parliamentary Conservative Party who haven't really adjusted either to the, the actual Brexit world, the world that was created um, by the, the referendum in June 2016, or the fact that either side of it, that these other really significant changes were taking place. I mean, I think more of them perhaps took place just before the referendum, but they didn't come into clearer focus until after, which it became clear that the world of QE was never going to end. And that means that any idea of there being a sort of relatively low public expenditure politics, a return to supposed discipline in relation to borrowing, um, etc., just absolutely just went away. Uh, and the pandemic has completely um, reinforced that. I mean, but as I say, I think it was clear before in this respect before the, the pandemic came along. Then you've got the fact of of the the change that came in terms of all the way in which most Western governments responded to China's Made in China um, 2025 project and the great emphasis that was put again, essentially on some kind of industrial policy that's bound up with the climate change question through geopolitical competition around green manufacturing, green um, energy. So, and this is before we even get to COVID, which obviously reinforces politics of the health service at the centre of British politics, and it reinforces various of the arguments um, about the state needing to do more and geopolitical risks to supply chains, uh, etc. all again, which put an emphasis on the state responding um, to this. So this world that Frost wants is gone. If, if that was the point from their point of view of Brexit, then events around the middle of that decade just changed things out of all with all recognition. So the idea that regardless of what Johnson does in terms of his view of what Brexit was supposed to be for, to use 
um, that language. It's a forlorn lost project. So another example of this is some of the things that Dominic Cummings has been saying. So I've been reading his blog, which one of its distinctive features is consistently he's talked up David Frost as almost at various points the only grown-up in the government. I mean, David Frost is definitely one of the heroic figures in Cummings's view of what's gone on in the Johnson government since he left. Cummings also spends an awful lot of time talking about Singapore. He, he posts on Singapore and the history of Singapore more than any other topic. And there is in, in the background of Frost's letter a sort of hint that the thing that's being lost is the kind of Singapore Brexit. But of course, Singapore is not a country that takes COVID regulation lightly, the opposite. And indeed, Cummings is not someone who takes COVID regulation lightly. So a big part of the Cummings critique of Johnson, both when he was there and particularly since he'd left, is that Johnson is not serious about containing COVID, that Johnson is to blame for these extra deaths. So just in that sort of nexus, Cummings, Frost, Singapore, it's not a single picture at all. It comes apart really quickly and easily. And that is, I think, one of the reasons, I do think this explicitly, that the opposition to Johnson is not coherent. No, I mean, generally, Cummings has been pretty pro-Frost, saying regarding the, you know, the Brexit questions and the Northern Irish protocol that if Frost didn't have to deal with such a, as Cummings sees it, useless prime minister, he could have made much more progress than is the case. I mean, you might say it's a kind of almost time superhero view of, of Frost, where the Northern Irish and protocol is concerned. But I think that Cummings would sign up to a fair bit of the, the opportunities of Brexit of being wasted narrative that Frost has articulated. But so far as he would tie it back to the, the COVID question, I think that Cummings would do it more in relation to what he sees as uh, Johnson's failure to get to grips with what for Cummings is the, the civil service problem uh, and the decision-making structures in Downing Street. I think when in time we can stand back and get a a clearer idea of what's happened in terms of British politics over the last couple of of years, I think that this will prove a a significant part of the story because I think what we can see after the 2019 general election is when Cummings appeared to be anyway sort of a peak influence um, within Downing Street or certainly was in a fairly strong position is that he wanted the government and looked like he was succeeding, committed to really radical civil service reform, uh, including trying to change the relationship between Number 10 and the the Treasury. That, that created the idea that in some sense the government was at war with the civil service, with the administrative state, and wanted it so fundamentally changed that it was creating a great deal of antagonism from an old guard within the civil service. But into that, pretty quickly came the COVID crisis. And then the administrative state had to be made, as it was, had to be made to work um, with a a public health emergency on the scale in which COVID has has been. And I think that the ways in which those two things um, crashed into each other have probably shaped actually behind the scenes quite a lot of of what's gone on on over the last couple of years. Just one more thing on Frost in his letter. So there's an, a line in it that stood out for me. I'm not really sure what I think about it, but it was uh, it gave a glimpse of sort of some of the sorts of discussions that might happen in Downing Street when they take a step back and try and see what they think of as the bigger picture. I'm not sure. I'm convinced by it. So he has a paragraph where he says Brexit is now secure. The challenge for the government is to deliver on the opportunities it gives us. And then he says, you know, my concerns about the direction of travel. And then he says, This is Frost speaking in his resignation letter. I hope we will move as fast as possible to where we need to get to, a lightly regulated, low-tax, entrepreneurial economy at the cutting edge of modern science 
and economic change. Fair enough. And then he says, 300 years of history show that countries which take that route grow and prosper. So that's his big background case behind all of this, which is somehow 300 years of history show that this vision he has for the small, entrepreneurial, lightly regulated British state, and therefore by implication anything that deviates from that is going to take us off the path of history. What is this 300 years of history that shows that? And why is it 300 years? So it's it's a pretty small data set. So if it's 300 years, presumably we're talking initially about Britain and then the United States. But then when you get more countries in the story of what it is to be a prosperous modern state, it's not clear that that's the evidence of history at all. I mean, that's not the history of the recent different European states, including Scandinavian states, the German states since the Second World War. I mean, it's true. I'm sure it's true that states that are at the cutting edge of modern science tend to do better than states that aren't. But lightly regulated, low tax, entrepreneurial economy, what is this 300 years of history? I think it's stating that thesis that's articulated in the book Why Nations Fail by Asimoglu and Robinson, that that it is actually institutions essentially take markets seriously that do best at economic growth. But there are any number of reasons to be sceptical about that um, thesis in general. And, and I'd say that the problem from trying to push that kind of narrative at the moment is that it you know it, it simply takes no account of the extraordinarily difficult you know economic facts you know on the ground and what was going on um, before we got to the you know the covid um situation which is is that it's clear that you know that the, the world economy was significantly slowing down that it was remained um dependent upon large amounts of quantitative um easing extremely low rates of interest uh, and then it had a you know a, a set of energy problems and i think that i would go back here to my you know like earlier point which is i don't think that the the conservative party and the people around it of the kind of david frost types uh, have got to grips really with the the kind of economic and geopolitical world in which we now and live. I mean, again, if we if we just step back just a month ago, before the latest surge in uh, in COVID um, cases, the problem that was being grappled with um, was inflation uh, and the amount of that that was coming from energy issues in in different um, ways. That takes us back into the territory in one way or another of the of of the nineteen seventies. And I, I I know that there's a kind of like narrative which basically says, oh well, look. You know, you get all this excessive state intervention in the seventies. This contributes to inf- inflation, etc. And then the supposedly wonderful eighties um, comes along. You get more of an emphasis on um, free markets and low taxes, um, etc. And and um, growth rates get higher. But I think that's a, a massive oversimplification of what happened between the nineteen seventies and the nineteen eighties. And I, I just think that in the world in which it is now, the idea you can fall back on some simple generalisation about what 300 years of history tells us about economic growth isn't going to cut it in in terms of an analysis about where we are now and what predicaments lie ahead of. And if it is the Asimoglian Robinson thesis, I mean, it makes me think of a couple of things, one of which that was David Cameron's favourite book, and David Cameron is not the model for Johnson or Cummings or David Frost. But also, I always think people read that book in a weird way and that they almost so this version of it, they almost read it like that um, Tolstoy line, you know, all happy families, I'm paraphrasing, but all happy families are alike, unhappy families are unhappy in their own particular way. And there's sort of a version of this that happy states are alike, they are 
lightly regulated, low-tax entrepreneurial economies at the cutting edge of modern science, economic change, and unhappy states are all different. You know, you could be North Korea or you could be sort of Harold Wilson's Britain or whatever. But actually, I think the opposite is true, that the broad thesis that stable, reliable institutions in which people can trust and in which, within which and under the auspices of which people can trade and exchange in a, broadly speaking, free market setting, there are a huge variety of ways you can do that. Happy states are very, very different from each other. Stable, prosperous states. There isn't one model there. In a way, the unhappy states are the same. They are, in in Asimoglu and Robinson's terms, they are extractive regimes. In the end, the power of the state becomes a basis simply for corruption or rent-seeking, whatever you want to call it, and people can no longer rely on the institutions of governance. But the idea that the lesson of that book is that there's a model for the good way of doing politics, which is sufficiently uniform that it cuts across 300 years of history strikes me as laughable. Enough on that. Let's talk about um, photographs and videos and the scandal. And we're going to come on to the by-election in a bit as well. We're going to try and cover all of it. Let's see how far we get. So, you know, Johnson's in trouble on a lot of fronts. And one of the reasons there there is now this drip drip. So we're recording this on Monday morning. There's a photo out overnight of this party and not party, sorry, this gathering in May 2020, wine and cheese and groups of people sitting around in what looks like a social setting that is being passed off as a as a work meeting and is contrasted then with people posting photographs from the same time of them not being able to see dying relatives. It does not look good. It comes on the back of a whole series of little pieces of evidence, but the one that does seem to, as they say, though I hate this phrase, to have cut through um, and there's a lot of evidence for this in polling evidence and and sort of focus group evidence. The Allegra Stratton video, the video that showed the person who was then Johnson's was going to be Johnson's official spokesperson, seemingly laughing about a party that in some sense clearly happened, but she was trying to say couldn't be admitted. And what it made me think of, I've talked about this in the past, that I think there's a, there's a distinction in politics between lying and hypocrisy and hypocrisy tends to come across worse than lying so people often think that why do the liars get away with it why does trump get away with it in a sense why does johnson get away with it let's call it the loose relationship that he has with the truth around the redecorating of his flat and the the drip drip of that the revelations that clearly he has not been fully open about what happened there i'm doubtful that that's going to get him I mean, some people think it will. Cummings seems to, has, at various points, seems to have thought that that's what will get him. That seems to me, at its worst, a lying issue. The hypocrisy issue is more toxic because the thing that people seem, all people, include myself in this, human beings seem allergic to, is coming across other people seemingly treating them one way when the cameras are rolling and then having a, a private view of the public behind closed doors, having a sort of secret understanding so that they're treating us like fools. And the advantage in a way, the natural advantage that politicians should have is that if, if they are treating us one way when the cameras are rolling and another way when the cameras aren't rolling, at least the cameras aren't rolling when they're treating us that other way. But what's so extraordinary to me about the Allegra Stratton tape, that thing, is is the bit where she suddenly says, you know, people remember this is being filmed. And for none of them to clock the possibility that having that on the record, I mean, that's, that is an example of there being filmed, you know, as we all do, anyone would do in a work setting, you wouldn't sometimes want to be filmed when you think the cameras aren't rolling. But they knew it. You know, it's a bit like you know, Nixon recording, he knew he was recording himself. And that's the thing 
even though you could argue it's slightly unfair on particularly on Allegra Stratton in that she, you know her awkwardness was clearly her sense her, her laughing was the laughter of excruciating embarrassment but what has come through from that 30 seconds of footage more powerfully than anything else is this idea that they might be taking us for fools and that's the thing that's toxic hypocrisy it is a political problem for governments and i think that part of the the disruptive um, politics of the last seven or eight years or so has been bound up with this question about the way in which those who have power see those who don't have power and how that they see rules in relation to themselves and in relation to those people who uh, who have to accept the decisions that um, governments um, made. It was a significant part, I think, of the way in which Trump tried to present himself as a as a candidate uh, in the um, United States, particularly when he was running for the nomination for the Republican Party more than the general election of him sort of sort of saying, look, I've seen this from the inside and this is what it's really like. And you shouldn't believe the things that these politicians are telling you because they treat you like fools in some respect. That was part, I think, of the narrative that he was at least early on pushing and that had certain resonance. The thing that has just changed this, but it's just made the the dynamics around it so much, so much, much more difficult um, for politicians is that the pandemic's come along um, and then the response to that has required a set of rules that are supposed to apply absolutely everybody, regardless of whether they've got power or, or, or whether they've got none whatsoever. And they are rules of the kind that nobody has experienced ever before in our lifetimes, or more than just our you know, lifetimes, our parents' lifetimes, etc. And so some of these rules have involved people making, you know, astonishingly difficult um, sacrifices, particularly when it comes to um, the end of life um, issues and then in relation to um, funerals. So I think when you put the dynamic that you already described and then add it into something that affects people's sense of what happened to them at these most intimate and painful um, moments of their um, lives, moments, memories that they're going to have for the rest of their lives, this is an incredibly toxic mix and and the fact that you you then in this case have it such that it's it's pleasure breaking the rules for pleasure that's being put in contrast in people's memories with keeping the rules at moments of deep suffering that just magnifies it again another you know several times more um, over so i think that, that this is incredibly difficult territory uh, and if it's the case that what's going to happen is a, a drip 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 of videos and, and and pictures suggesting that the rules essentially didn't imp- apply in in number 10 that is a big problem for boris johnson an absolutely big problem for him talking politics is brought to you in partnership with the london review of books ready to pop the question the jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. At least one of his 
parliamentary critics said, this goes back to Barnard Castle. That was the beginning of this impossible problem for the government once Johnson didn't bite the bullet on that. Essentially, the implication was get rid of Cummings back then. And I've been thinking a bit about why it provoked extraordinary fury. That story and that story absolutely cut through. Everyone remembers it. It's what most people think of now when they think of Dominic Cummings, just the two words Barnard Castle. But why his press conference, really extraordinary and excruciating in a way, not press conference, but that thing in the in the Rose Garden where he answered the press's questions, uh, sitting in his white shirt, scrubbed up a bit, seems to have done almost nothing to affect the Tories' poll ratings in the way that the poll ratings have just dropped. I mean, for the first time, there's just a falling off a cliff, more or less from the moment the Allegra Stratton video appeared. And I think it was because on this hypocrisy lying thing, Cummings kind of played it straight. So as he, it wasn't for pleasure. I don't think anyone really thought, not not in a kind of wine and cheese way, that his his weird journey around the country was for pleasure. He clearly got himself into a tangle. And then with hindsight, I don't think anyone would, would think that he was giving completely straight answers. There was something disingenuous about it. But he absolutely played it straight. Um, he didn't seem to me... So, so people, it depends what you mean by hypocrisy. If hypocrisy is not playing by the rules that you think should apply to everyone else, well, then, in a sense, he was a hypocrite because he did seem to at least breach some of those rules, certainly in spirit, if not in letter. But the idea that you're sort of treating people differently behind closed scenes from how you would treat them in public. There was a weird consistency to that straight bat response. The The recent stuff is so toxic because it's people laughing and smiling and making light of it. It's the making light of it. And again, it relates back to what you said about Trump. You know, the point about Trump, and I know I've said this before, he may be a liar. I mean, he is a liar. Um, he has an incredibly promiscuous relationship with the truth. But there's not really a sense that he's different when the cameras aren't rolling than when they are rolling. That's his political superpower in a way. I mean, he's probably angrier and more profane when the cameras aren't rolling, but he's not a different person. And these pictures just do convey, the pictures and the videos, that sense that these people, when they think they're not being watched, might be different in how they think about us. I don't think it's going to get Johnson in the short run, but it's incredibly hard to come back from. The other thing that's different in terms of the politics of the the, the situation, and rather than just the, the reaction that people might have as individuals looking at that picture and then thinking back to their lives in, in, in May 2020, um, when the whole situation with Cummings blew up, that it was still the case that politics of Brexit was still quite fluid. I, mean, I can't remember the exact timings in terms of when the Barnard Castle thing blew up in relation to whether it was when it was clear that um, the transition agreement um, wasn't going to be extended, but it was certainly in the period of the transition agreement. The willingness, I think, of a, of a section of Conservative Party support to think that certain things that they might really disapprove of might have to be put on hold, so to speak, their disapproval put on hold to try to ensure that that Brexit did in fact get completed and that um, the transition agreement came to an end, the trade agreement was negotiated. That still mattered. But we're, you know, we're quite long some way past that period now. We're we're nearly a a year on from the the transition agreement coming to an end. Although it's the case that the the Liberal Democrats have have won a a couple of by-elections, I don't think anybody thinks that they've won these by-elections because of their uh, commitment to return um, the UK to the single market and the customs union. So I I think that ability that, that Johnson had 
to ride the Brexit must be secure. And, and then that means that certain kinds of people who have been opposed to Brexit are now leading the way in terms of criticism about whatever the specific issues are like the, the, the comings. That dynamic, I think, is is played out now. Uh, and then it, it, it's, it's pretty difficult, I think, for Johnson to use Brexit as a, as a motivating issue for the con- present Conservative coalition of voters. So those two by-elections that the Liberal Democrats won, most recently North Shropshire with the biggest swing since, I believe this is right, since Christchurch in 1993. So there is a kind of parallel with 1993. So in 1993, there were two by-elections, Newbury and Christchurch. The John Major government had a you know, stark fall in popularity, including in the polls, after Black Wednesday. And then the following year, there were these two by-elections that they lost with huge swings against them. They're similar in the sense that uh, the Labour vote in both cases was squeezed. There was clearly tactical voting going on. So we've had Cheshire and Amersham and North Shropshire. And some commentators said, well, this looks terrible for the government, but the consolation that the government can take in this is that these were terrible results for Labour too, and that though the Liberal Democrats pose a threat in certain seats in the South, it's quite hard for them to hold on to these seats in general elections, which are different from by-elections, and and Labour still looks like it's got nowhere to go. But that was true in 1993, and I was looking back on some of the commentary on 1993. So there was an article by the sophologist, political scientist Ivor Crewe in 1993, in which he was asking this question, you know, should the government really be worried, Major's government be worried, because Labour look like they're doing terribly in these by-elections, and it's, it's only the Lib Dems who are taking what is clearly a protest vote, and clearly this is a vote that signals a dissatisfaction with the way that the government is being run, because he also says actually on some of the underlying polling people, though there was a recession biting, people were becoming a little bit more economically optimistic in these seats. So this was a a sort of moral judgment in some ways on the government. The Lib Dems were the beneficiaries, Labour were nowhere. And Ivor Cruz said 1993, that is completely false comfort for the government. First of all, they should be worried that this does seem to be a rejection of as it were, the government, in the spirit of the government, the kind of way the country is being governed, that goes across some of the underlying economic factors. And also, there should be no comfort in the thought that the electorate are willing to vote tactically, because that could be terrible for the Conservatives at the next general election. These were seats that Labour was never going to win. But the fact that Labour did badly in these seats is not a reason to think that Labour couldn't be on the brink of a serious revival in the seats where Labour has a chance. It all depends on where you're second and where you're third. So potentially some of these things could hold now. And after all, Ivor Crew was right. In 1993, that government was going to be wiped out four years later by Tony Blair's Labour Party. Tony Blair wasn't. It was John Smith's Labour Party then. Tories who took comfort from Labour's very poor performance in those by-elections was taking false comfort. And yet it does feel very different now, partly because Labour's position then was different. We've talked about this endlessly. You know, Scotland was still Labour country and the path to a general election majority was clear if Labour could win certain seats and Labour could revive in different parts of its broad coalition. Uh, Labour would win a majority and it's much harder to see that now without Scotland unless there is a sign of a Labour revival in Scotland, which I don't think there is yet. You know, for Labour to get to a position, not where Blair was, but even close to being able to win a majority. You've got to sort of work out a whole range of different seats that Labour could win. So yeah, the Lib Dems could pick off a few Tory seats in a general election. Maybe both of these seats they won, who knows? They could pick off a few Tory seats. But to find that range of constituencies 
in which even a you know a more appealing, more centrist, Keir Starmer-led Labour Party could construct without Scotland a broad enough coalition to supplant the Tories in England, it looks to me much, much, much harder than in 1993. There are some parallels in the the fact that it looks like you know Tory abstention played a a pretty significant part in what happened in North Shropshire and. Tory, Tory abstention was a pretty significant part of the 1997 general election. It wasn't just a question of more tactical voting between Liberal Democrat and Labour voters. I mean, obviously, in part, that was because the, the, the actually in terms of absolute numbers of Conservative voters that John Major had done rather well in the, the 1992 general election. And I think if you look on the other side of it about the tactical voting issue, the number of seats in a general election conditions rather than a by-election condition set of set of circumstances in which such tactical voting is viable and is going to make a difference I think is less than it was in the 1990s but I think that we would also have to expect that the conservative electoral coalition that was put together in in 2019 is going to unravel in part because it was such a an odd political coalition uh, it, it had two you know like driving forces of it that are now taken out of the picture. So the anti-Corbyn aspect of it and the, to use the campaign slogan for shorthand, get Brexit done aspect of it. It was always going to be difficult to convince Conservative voters in the kinds of seats that we're thinking about where where North Shropshire is concerned. And I don't think we should you know, forget in this that you know, it wasn't so long ago that the Conservatives held on to one and Old Bexley and Sidcup, and if you've been betting, just looking at the seats themselves, you might have said it was the the other way round in terms of likely outcomes. Once you ignore the fact that the circumstances of the two by elections being held were very different, but this version of the Conservative Party committed to trying to hold on to the uh, electoral coalition that it that it that it won in in, in two thousand and nineteen was going to run into the difficulties without adding COVID and without adding the hypocrisy issues that have now come into play for Johnson around that. But as you say, what we still don't really know is is whether there is a way that a Keir Starmer-led Labour Party can make some progress in unknotting the various difficulties that it faces in terms of making a recovery. The bottom line would seem to be, as you say, without some Scottish recovery, it runs into considerable difficulties. And I think that this is where the the by-election thing and the, the general election really pull apart now in ways in which they, they didn't in the in the 1990s because any question, any point in which it looks like Labour is a plausible party of government again is going to raise the English question in relation to the SNP's influence in, in Westminster. And as a consequence of the pandemic is that this has got more power than it's ever had before because what we've seen during the course of the pandemic is that there has to be an English executive. The English executive has to be essentially the UK government. So in terms of the, the politics um, of the union, it really does matter if, if Labour doesn't have a recovery in, in Scotland. And I think the other difference from 1993 is just that there were a wide range of parties then that people could vote for, but it was a three-party system plus the SNP, Plaid Cymru in Wales, SNP in Scotland and so on. But trying to factor in from 2019 to what might happen in 2023 or 2024, Labour does face a, 
a potential challenge from the Green Party among younger voters. And then there's the question of what happens to Brexit Party votes, particularly in those red wall seats and so on. It is a more complicated, more fractured picture. It just is. That moment where, as it were, Blair managed to pull the whole thing together, even with a Blair rather than a Starmer. It's hard to imagine what a Blair figure would be in this context. But even with a Blair rather than a Starmer, it's harder to see. That said, I should say, because I have been reading it a lot, Dominic Cummings in his blog makes up some guesstimates of probabilities of what might happen. And he said if Labour got rid of Keir Starmer and replaced Keir Starmer with Lisa Nandy and the Tories held on to Johnson, didn't replace Johnson with, say, Sunak, he would give Labour a 40% chance of winning an an overall majority, not just of forming the next government, which I think he thinks would be almost certain for Labour under those circumstances. But there is a path back to majority. Who knows? Who knows? He's not the guru. Sorry if I made it sound like he is. Last question, Helen. So we're recording this on Monday, the Monday before Christmas. We don't know even what's going to happen between now and Christmas. Over the weekend, there's a sort of sense that people are waiting for the government's decision on something having to tighten around COVID restrictions possibly before Christmas, almost certainly after Christmas. That raises all sorts of political tangles for the government, not least how to get significant changes through Parliament and so on. So we're going to come back to this after a Christmas break. We want to return to these discussions. I think we both feel that we're in the middle of this. We're we're not in a position to judge what has happened because what has happened has yet to happen. But we are coming to the end of a year, 2021, another pretty momentous, extraordinary year. Um, you know, we had a break from talking politics over the summer. We've come back more like fortnightly than weekly. So we've had a little bit more time to step back and reflect. But Helen, you and I haven't really had a chance to talk about what we think has happened this year. Um, so I'm just going to ask one question, and maybe we could come back to this question in the new year. You know, if you had to guess now, and you know, thinking about the sorts of things we're interested in on talking politics, uh, domestically, internationally, we haven't talked about America yet, but we're going to come back to America next year when we get to the anniversary of Biden's inauguration. But what do you think from now, Monday before Christmas, what's 2021, what's most memorable about it for you? What, what's it likely to be remembered for? Because I'm really not sure. I can't, I, I'm not sure what the story is of this year. And I'm not sure I could really answer the question about what I think is the most memorable, not least because some of the things that were quite extraordinary as they were happening, like what happened in Afghanistan, and say over the summer, I just sort of seemed to then just sort of like fall away. You know, that the... the the first part of the year was, I'm not sure I could put dates upon this, but this, certainly some, some part of the first part of the, the year became a sort of an optimistic story about vaccines changing the direction of the pandemic and that there became a sense in which not the world was going back to the way in which it was before, but that there were some elements of, of normality at least um, returned to it. And I think you can see that, you know, like in, in politics in this country too, as I recall, uh, I think that the you know, the Prime Minister's speech and at the Conservative Party conference had much to say about the pandemic. It was all quite future orientated. It was about levelling up. It was about zero two thousand and fifty. So and I think there was a sort of sense. I mean, if you leave aside the, the the geopolitical situation over the summer, which I think was pretty difficult on on a number of fronts, that it, that politics was moving back to being about economic questions and recovery questions and what reforms could be made as the economy was recovering. Then I think that the 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 autumn was really began came to be dominated by the energy questions um both 
because of the COP26 in Glasgow, but also because of the problems uh, in gas supply issues and electricity prices and the return of moderately high oil prices. And we and it became a, a question of the year being about, well, how is this recovery going to happen in ways that isn't inflationary? And that, that seemed to raise some pretty difficult then questions about what kind of monetary response there could be to inflation problems in the world of QE and high debt. Um, etc. And then it seems like the the last part of it has just been plunged back into basically um, pandemic politics uh, again. So it seems that that might be actually that that we constantly dealing with the recovery politics and pandemic politics uh, at the same time, and that any sort of narrative art we want to say about okay, we're moving these one set of problems, we're moving on to the next set of problems that are in part generated by the legacy uh, of the, the pandemic that that might just be the wrong way of of thinking about it that we're, we're just going to actually um, be dealing with multiple crises simultaneously for for some time yet yeah, i think 2021 must still be the year of the vaccine i mean just just the counterfactual of what this year would have been like without and in 2020 a lot of people were warning us that the successful vaccine might take two years might take five years might take 20 years so say even if it took the full two years what domestic politics might have been like now in the absence of successful and readily available vaccines it's quite hard to imagine it would be a completely different i think world so it's still the year of the vaccine but as you say what felt like vaccine politics in the first half of the year turns out to be different from what vaccine politics look like in the second half of the year but it's still it's still the vaccine world I think that's the standout of 2021 I suppose the other thing I feel is that they're too significant of the kind of thing that we often talk about that we try and not just get wrapped up in electoral horse races and who's in and who's out but two very significant changes one at the start of the year one at the end of the year the start of the year in the United States Biden becoming president the end of the year the end of the Merkel era and Schultz taking over in Germany a new coalition in Germany the possibility of a new politics in Germany so two things that seen simply out of context might seem like the big political stories of the year yet they don't feel like that neither of them feel like that it may turn out in future that people will say well 2021 was the year that Biden came in and so x y and z followed or Germany changed course but as of now it doesn't feel like that it feels like these two events which in some respects are evidence of the possibility of a, a more normalized politics feel to me at least relatively superficial in the context of the underlying political forces at work, which threatened to overwhelm them. But I think it must also be true that 2021 was was still a year of relatively frozen politics for the reasons that you said, that one step forward was sort of four-fifths of a step back. And it's hard to have any kind of political breakout in these circumstances, economic, ideological, but it'll come. I mean, the, the, the politics of the pandemic when it enters the non-frozen phase, will explode somewhere. I'm sure of that. And it could be in 2022, in which case 2021 will be the year before, I think. A significant part of this does turn on on how various um, geopolitical questions play out. And that what we, you know, we've seen even I'd say particularly perhaps in the last few months of the year, that you know, there was a set of questions about China and, and Russia that are pretty difficult. In relation to China, the the change in administration in Washington hasn't made a significant amount of difference. And I think in relation to Russia, one might say 
like cast doubt on how much change the people in power in Berlin is going to make to the the underlying structural dynamics of the situation, particularly in relation to Ukraine. So that it could be that this latter part of 2021 will look like a period in which these geopolitical questions that have been mounting um, for some time took perhaps more decisive turns into difficult territory, perhaps particularly where the where the Russia question is concerned. We could see that in um, what happened uh, in relation to the you know, the whistleblower about how the Foreign Office had dealt with the Afghanistan in question. On the one hand, you know, that that was a, a a geopolitical question. It was primarily about um, decisions that were made in Washington, but. What we had here was, you know, was a pretty devastating account of how the experience of the pandemic and the the work from home culture that the pandemic had created then interacted with this geopolitical question. So I think that actually that the pandemic has now permeated so many things of just like everyday political life that there just isn't a world in which we say, okay, well, we've moved beyond it because the ways in which it has changed us all and the ways in which people behave are now part of the post-pandemic world if we ever get to that. And of course, if something happens in Ukraine or in Taiwan, then what will 2021 be remembered for? Well, then 2021 will be more like 1912 or 1913. What are those years remembered for? A lot happened in 1912. A lot happened in 1913. These were years of huge political turbulence but how they remembered they were the year before so we will be back in the new year to pick up this conversation and to reflect on what might happen between now and then we're also going to be talking in the new year about america another subject we've left alone for a while there's plenty to catch up on there and we'll be reflecting as always on talking politics about everything that we think is of interest going on around the world But in the meantime, I want to wish everyone a really happy Christmas. I know this should come with a caveat, as happy a Christmas as circumstances allow. Do have a good break. Thank you, everyone, for listening and for your support this year. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. The, the argument that was made in the book by um, Asimogadu and Robinson, you know, like, why nations, is it why nations succeed or why nations fail? Uh, I should know, because I think I've got it on the shelf. I know, I'm sitting next to you. <laughs> and Which was, coincidentally, David Cameron's mm. favourite book, if you remember. I think we discussed this, that um, yeah, Ed just... Miliband's favourite book was, um, God, now I've forgotten. Cut all this bit out, let me just, yeah. <laughs> why <laughs> nations fail. What okay. was Ed Miliband's favourite book? Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.